0: Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, friends. How are you doing? I hope that you are having a better day than me. (laughs) Let's just say that. Oh my God, I am having one of those days where I just can't win. (laughs) And that's okay. You know, if you win all the time, life would be boring, right? I'm just going to tell myself that because I have to today. But before we jump in, I do have a couple things I do need to address. So I've mentioned in a few episodes in the past weeks, Alex and I will be making a very large move. We're going to be driving across the country for this move. So because of that, I am going to be taking two weeks off during our move, since I won't have any time to do research, record, or edit, which is unfortunate. But doing a big move takes up a lot of brain space and time, and we're also road tripping it. And I wouldn't want to put out an episode I wasn't proud of just for the sake of getting something out, and it's probably best for my sanity to not have to do all of that all at once. But once we are in our new place and settled, I will be back up and running as normal and I will be releasing a bonus episode as normal. Um, Our bonus episodes over on Patreon come out on the second Tuesday of every month which just so happens to be one of the weeks I won't be posting a regular episode. So if you miss me, you can head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast and get access to a bunch of bonus episodes. I think we're on number 17, so there is plenty over there, and I'm planning on documenting a bit of our road trip on our close friends list, which you can also access on Patreon, which is fun. So there won't be a regular episode on the 4th or the 11th, but there will be a bonus episode over on Patreon coming out on the 11th. But then after that, I'll be up and running as usual, like I said. It's a crazy time, but thank you for bearing with me. It's a little weird taking two weeks off like this, since the only week I've really taken off in a very long time is Christmas. But hey, you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes. And right now, that means taking some time off to do a very big move. But thank you for being here, and like I said, thank you for sticking with me through all of this. For our story today, we're going to be heading on down to Texas, where everything is bigger, even the bonfires. Texas A&M University is in the town of College Station, Texas, which doesn't sound like a real town, but it is. And the official greeting of A&M is, howdy. And it is a school that has a lot of traditions. In 1999, their biggest and arguably most important tradition was the Texas Aggie Bonfire, where the students at the university would create a huge bonfire to burn the night before the Texas A&M versus University of Texas football game. The bonfire started in 1907, when a bunch of students at the time were excited about their rivalry game with University of Texas, and literally tore down a barn so they would have wood to burn and celebrate. The burning of the bonfire was meant to symbolize their burning desire to beat University of Texas in football. And that's a direct quote. It symbolized their burning desire to beat University of Texas in football, and we know how Texans feel about football. It was a very well-supported tradition by the university. Of the many traditions Texas A&M had, the bonfire was one of the most important, if not the most important, depending on who you asked. Around 5,000 people built it, and 75,000 people would watch it burn. But before we get into the actual bonfire collapse, we need to talk about the tradition of bonfire because it gives background, of course, but also the tradition of it all is far too interesting to me to not talk about it. So bear with me. As soon as you stepped foot on campus as a freshman, you knew about the bonfire. If you lived in a dorm, there was a channel that was dedicated 24 hours a day just to the bonfire before they even started building it. So it was pretty impossible to not know about this bonfire. If you were looking at the Texas Aggie Bonfire, you'd see what kind of looks like a six-tier wedding cake. It has multiple layers that get smaller as you go to the top, and the tallest it had ever gotten was over 100 feet, They do not play around. Tens of thousands of people would circle around this massive fire burning. It was a way to bring the whole campus together before the last football game of the season. The bonfire community is what brought the dorms together and created a lot of unity on campus. The dorm leaders would recruit anyone they could, which usually meant they got damn near the entire dorm to participate. And they would start months in advance and do everything from promoting to recruiting people to cutting down the logs to literally building the structure. They did everything from start to finish. The guys in Aston Hall and the girls in Mosier Hall were kind of the leaders of the bonfire brigade. But to participate in any bonfire activities, you had to have what was called a pot. You had to smoke the ganj. Only the cool kids could build the fire. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> wouldn't that be silly? I guess it would kind of make sense. I mean, no, it wouldn't. But it would be silly if they're like, you have to burn to be able to build the bonfire. <laughs> no, a pot was really just a helmet. They looked like the helmets used in World War II. I think they actually were like World War II helmets. So everyone got a pot. <laughs> I'm just imagining someone handing someone else a joint and being like, here is a pot. That's not what it was. It was a helmet, and everyone decorated their pot. They held pot painting parties out in the courtyard, which is very wholesome stuff. This was a huge gathering of students painting their World War II helmets, and there would be lots of paint, masking tape, stickers, anything they needed to decorate their helmets. There's even a hierarchy established with their pots because of course there is. And that's done with their colors. Each dorm got a different colored pot, but also the main student leaders got red pots and those were passed along each year. So whoever was the student leader last year would choose a successor the following year and then that pot would be passed down from person to person. So it was pretty cool to get a red pot. And if that's all you had to do then sign me up right like i love a little arts and crafts and i can even get down with some team leader icebreaker bullshit if it's done right but then after they decorated their pots they had to put them to use meaning they had to get the firewood but this wasn't any old firewood you might expect they would go out into the woods and chop down whole trees One tree would basically be one to two logs of this bonfire structure, depending on how massive the trees they cut down were. So they had to cut down probably over a hundred trees. And that's just a guesstimate because this bonfire was massive. The process of the students going out and cutting down trees was called cut because each different step of the process had its own name. And now we've moved on to cut they would have to travel about 30 to 40 miles from campus and physically cut down the trees that they would build into the structure and then burn. And the first day of cut, the leaders would bring out speakers onto each floor of the dorm at about 3.30 in the morning and blast what was called a wake-up song, meaning like heavy metal, and blast it as loud as they could to get everyone up. And at this point, this is sounding pretty culty. From an outsider perspective, when I got to this part in my research, I was waiting for the next thing they said to be, we weren't allowed to eat for X amount of time because it would piss off the bonfire gods, or obviously we all went out into the woods amongst the trees we were cutting down and had an orgy. I mean, they were just very committed to this fire. Because if I was a freshman in these dorms and someone was blasting heavy metal music at three in the morning, I would be pissed. This sounds like hazing. And I didn't sign up for that. And I was right, it got weirder. They said after they were woken up at 3.30 a.m., they groggily got out of bed and put on what was called your groads, I believe is what they called it. And this would be your jeans and shirt that you would use specifically for bonfire activities. So you would use the exact same set of jeans and shirt for every single bonfire activity that you would not wash until the bonfire. And mind you, they started months in advance, and they did many, many activities. So they wouldn't wash these clothes. They would just wear them and wear them and wear them and get sweatier and sweatier and sweatier and stinkier, and then they would throw them into the bonfire when it finally did happen. So everyone was just getting progressively more gross and stinky, which does kind of sound a little culty to me. You know, when I went into this story, I did not anticipate finding a bonfire cult. I gotta be honest. (laughs) I I did not think that that was where it was going to take me. But so John Comstock, who was one of the students participating in bonfire that year, said that their clothes would basically stand up on their own in the corner by the time they were about to burn them. Like they were that grody by the time they were done. And something else gross was after chopping down trees all day, they would use their pots, aka their helmets, as cups. They would pour their water into their pots and drink out of them. I mean, I have always been a little bit of a germaphobe, so it's possible that I find this more disgusting than other people do, but I don't know if this is like a 1999 thing where they're like, germs aren't real yet, or if this is just a Texas A&M bonfire cult. I, someone let me know. Is this a me thing or is this a bonfire cult? Being out there cutting down trees was no joke because one person at a time would go up to the tree and chop at it until they got tired. And then they would just go to the back of the line and then the next person would go up. And someone said, quote, it separated the men from the boys real quick. And I'm sure that didn't do any damage to anyone's mental health at all, or perpetuate toxic masculinity. I'm sure that did wonders for all of that. That sounds awful. They would just, one by one, with everyone watching you, all of your peers, who I'm assuming you're trying to impress, would watch as you went up to a tree and you chopped at it until you couldn't do it anymore, until you exhausted yourself physically. And then afterward, you would just fall to the back of the line and then rinse and repeat. I'm sure after that day, those days, plural, they got real good sleep because holy shit, that sounds exhausting. Cut would last anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks. After cutting down these huge trees with axes, they'd get cleared with a chainsaw at the base to make it so they were sheer logs. They were then loaded up onto trucks and taken back to campus where they were sorted by size into piles and then they'd get sorted into six stacks. The logs were brought onto the polo field and then they would start the process of stack because once cut is finished, now we go into stack, which, you guessed it, is when they would start stacking the logs into position for the actual bonfire structure. Stack was when people started getting excited. Students who weren't even involved would bring their own campfires at night and watch stack happen. Like they would sit in little lawn chairs and like build little fires and watch it happen. Stack was six to eight weeks. And then there was push week, which were midnight to 6 a.m. shifts to finish building the bonfire. They would use a crane to lift the logs from horizontal to vertical and then lift them up to the different tiers of the structure. Because like I said, it was like a wedding cake. So there was like multiple different levels of this bonfire. Then using ropes and wires, they would secure the logs into place with pliers. They would basically twist the wires around the logs to make them all stand together and stay in place. So they would like tighten the wires to... Essentially, hold it together. This structure was huge. And these were 18 to, you know, 21-year-old kids climbing up these huge logs. And I don't think there was much or really anything holding them to it. They just had their helmets and they had, you know, ropes and swing seats that they used to pull themselves up higher to guide logs into place. So it was actually pretty dangerous to do this, but they all loved it. November 18th of 1999 was going to be their second to last stack shift to complete the building of the bonfire before they finally got to burn it. So they were officially in push week. So everyone was going out there from like midnight and doing midnight to 6am shifts, or they would do double shifts from like 6am to 12. So some of them were working like insane hours to finish building this bonfire. Freshmen weren't supposed to go all the way to the top with the building of the bonfire because it got so tall, and this was their first time doing it, so that was supposed to be like a safety measure they had in place. They were like, okay, you freshmen have never done this, so maybe keep to the bottom layers until you get the hang of it. But there were, of course, some exceptions. Freshman Tim Curley had been promoted to a swing seat, And that job meant a crane would bring in another log and it was his job to sit in a swing seat, which was basically like a plank of wood attached to two ropes that you could use to like hoist yourself higher and lower and like it was a swing, essentially. You get it. So as you sat on the swing, you would guide that log into place and then other people would wire it in so that it was like secure. And it was a pretty dangerous job, but he was really excited about it. John Comstock had missed a management test, so he was in his dorm studying because the following day, he had to take two tests in a row, classic college. But his buddies came to his dorm room searching for him because they had a double shift that night with Stack. They were going to be doing both the 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift and then the 6 a.m. to noon shifts, very dedicated. And even though he had those back-to-back tests, He decided bonfire was more important because you can't get those experiences in a textbook, is what he said. And again, classic college. Blowing off some tests to do fun stuff with your friends. I get it. But also, it's not like he was going to party. He was going to do manual labor. So maybe I don't get it. Anyway, Bill Davis and Mandy Luke were also out there with a big group of people. Mandy was one of the Mosier Hall girls. They had shown up at around 11.45pm, and that night she had met up with the Mosier Hall leader, Miranda, by the Mosier Hall tree, and Miranda had asked her if she would be her successor for the following year, and take over as leader. So the vibes were pretty good out there. The tiers of the bonfire were really starting to come together, and it was finally starting to look like a gigantic wooden wedding cake. Everyone was getting really excited. There were students on every tier of the wedding cake, if you will. From the first stack to the second stack, there was about roughly 40 feet up. Mandy had been asked if she had been up on one of the swings yet, and since she was a freshman, she said she hadn't. So they told her to come up there and try it out. Even though she was a little nervous, she didn't want to come off as a chicken, so she figured she'd give it a try. Meanwhile, Tim Curley had been on one of these swing seats higher up in the stack, but he also wanted one of his buddies to get to have that experience and have some fun. So he got off of his swing seat and climbed up to the fourth tier to continue help guiding the logs and wiring them into place. John Comstock, who had been about 55 feet up onto the stack, was wiring logs into place. Because he was one of the older students, so he was told, you know, get as high up as possible because, you know, you know how to do this. So that's where he was. He was basically as high up as possible. But at that point, he decided he would wire just a few more before he left to go back to studying for his tests the next day. But just before he could leave, the tower shook. The bottom stack of the bonfire began to groan and creak like a door opening in a horror movie the 18-foot logs, which were wired together so they stood perpendicular to the ground along the base of a towering center pole, started to lean slowly to the southeast. Each tier rested on the one below it, so that when the bottom layer shifted, the entire stack of logs, more than a million pounds of timber, was set in motion." As the structure fell, Bill Davis recognized that the entire structure seemed to be falling toward him, and he did all he could to push himself away from it as he fell toward the ground and watched as all of the gigantic wooden logs fell at him. I can't even picture what that must have been like, to see all of those gigantic logs falling toward you. That sounds terrifying. And then there was stillness, for a moment, as the dust and dirt settled around the fallen logs. Mandy recalled it was eerily quiet as she regained consciousness. It was really dusty, but she could see some of the light peeking through. She could see there had been a yellow crane that had kept all of the logs from crushing her, and was keeping them from pinning her body down. She could feel trees to her right, and when she looked to her left, she saw a pocket of light. At that point, she was in panic mode to get out and began crawling toward that light to the left by the tires of the crane. It was really dark out, but there was a glow from the lights in the parking lot off in the distance. Before the collapse, student Brittany Allison had been sitting on a swing seat some 30 feet in the air when she saw the logs in front of her start to move. She looked up, saw the third and fourth stack bulge, and knew that they were going to fall. Her first instinct was to jump, but instantly she recognized that to do so would only propel her into their path, so she chose to ride it out on her swing. Imagine having the foresight to know not to jump off of your swing seat, even though every part of your being wants to get away from what's happening. She could like predict that if she jumped, everything would fall on top of her. That's very quick thinking. I don't know that I'd be able to do that. A log landed on her left shoulder, leaving a bruise on her bicep, and bounced up into her face and hit her nose. The next thing she knew, the stack had finished falling, most of it away from her position, and she found herself on the shapeless heap that less than ten seconds before had been the bonfire, and her swing was nowhere in sight. Her left foot was trapped between two logs, but she was able to maneuver it free and climb down. But not everyone was as lucky as Mandy and Brittany. Around the same time, John Comstock had woken up as well. He had been, unfortunately, pinned under the stack of logs. There was a log over his waist, as well as a log across the right side of his face. The one across his face had hit his head so hard that his lower teeth had gone through his lower gums. His right bicep was also pinned between two logs, which had a lot of weight on top of that. The only part of him that was still mobile was his left arm, which could be seen out of the stack through a small gutter-sized hole. Bill Davis had woken up face down in the dirt. He said it didn't feel as if he had a ton of weight or pressure on his body, but he couldn't move at all. He was in a cavity just big enough for his chest. He was about three to five feet into the pile. His left elbow had been flared out kind of like he was doing I'm a little teapot and he was showing his handle, and a log had fallen on his handle. He had no idea how much of the pile was on him, what was over his body, or where he was in the pile, but he decided he'd just start screaming for help. From the outside, What had been this massive 100-foot wedding cake structure now more closely resembled a fallen game of Jenga. For those who weren't in the collapse, it became clear that their friends and classmates had been crushed underneath a couple tons of logs. It was around that time that a 911 call had been made, and emergency responders were called to the scene. Of those emergency responders were student EMTs. The university was their responsibility, but also, this was a huge call. They were expecting a lot of injuries and a lot of casualties, so emergency responders from all over the city were called in, because they needed all hands on deck. Of those student EMTs was Jay Sarton. He grabbed a pair of gloves from the ambulance and decided he'd start to figure out who needed the most help. At that time, John Comstock was still under the pile, but his left arm was free, and he had been able to wave it to signal to EMTs that he was down there and was alive. And as he frantically waved it, trying to signal to someone, he felt someone grab his hand. They told him, we know you're down there, but they had to go help other people right now, but they would be back. This wasn't the best news, but he at least felt like he didn't have to keep panicking because now he knew someone else knew where he was and that he was alive down there. Bill Davis, on the other hand, wasn't doing as hot. He was in an extremely tight space. He could thankfully still breathe, but there was no space at all for him to lift up and slide his arms out. Many first responders didn't know how bad it actually was until they got to the scene. Some of them were annoyed to be pulled out of bed, especially those who wouldn't normally respond to that area because they didn't realize the severity of the situation until they got there. But once they saw that the bonfire had fallen over, they knew that it was serious. By the time battalion chief Thomas Gole had arrived on the scene, the Texas A&M EMS had made at least one, if not two, complete surveys of the entire stack so they knew where to begin. And two female students had given them a list of names of people they believed were unaccounted for. And surprisingly, this list actually was pretty accurate. There were eight names on this list that were correct. They needed to put triage tags on people to identify who needed to go to the hospital immediately or who could wait longer. Firefighters and EMTs had to crawl through the logs and dirt to look for people. Freshman Tim Curley had been found on top of the stack of logs. He had been on the second level of the stack when it collapsed, and now the upper half of his body was visible, while the bottom half was below the logs. Even though he was trapped, Tim could still talk to the rescue workers, and he told them he was fine, but he needed the rescue workers to help his friends below him first. Instead of getting himself out, he wanted the emergency workers to get others out before him, so they listened because it seemed like he was okay enough for the time being. There were so many people in desperate need of help, so if someone was telling them to move on for the time being, then they were going to listen. Firefighter Darren Allen found Bill Davis, who was underneath the stack, and by this point, Bill was having a really hard time breathing. He thought it was just his asthma acting up. He didn't even take into consideration it could be the giant stack of logs piled on top of his body, but honestly, it's probably better his mind hadn't gone there. When Darren found Bill, Bill had told him, "'I'm going to die. I can't breathe.'" Darren had realized at that point that Bill was face down in the dirt, and he had told Darren he had asthma. All Darren could do was tell him, No, you're not going to die. But in his mind, he was thinking, This guy is trapped, and there's nothing I can do. Nobody wants to leave a person trapped down there. But Darren had to keep moving, because there wasn't anything he could do for Bill at that moment. Shortly after that, Darren found John Comstock in the stack. He was also going to be a very tough person to get out since he was on the bottom. Not only that, but he was on the bottom on the worst side of the collapse. There were lots of logs stacked above him. They could see his arm and leg sticking out, but the rest of his body was trapped underneath, and they couldn't tell what his injuries were or how bad they were. For John, thinking back on it, the only memories he had of being in the stack was all auditory memories because he couldn't see anybody. All he remembers is who he was talking to and the sounds of their voice. His head was in a fixed position in the dark. Someone who talked to John while he was down there who he really didn't want to talk to was a Catholic preacher. He came and asked John if he wanted his last rites, and John did not want that at all Because he didn't want to die. He told the preacher to give him a blessing or a prayer, but do not give him his last rites. Yeah, that's a little messed up. I understand, like, what that preacher's doing. Like, to him is a kind thing. But to someone who's in that situation, that's very stressful to think about. Please don't put that in my mind. What the hell? Darren was assigned to stay with John. His job was to keep talking to John to try to keep him calm and keep his mind off of what was going on and give him as much patient care as he could. They tried to get an oxygen mask to him, but they couldn't get it on John because there was a branch over his face. So they decided to cut the oxygen tubing and they fed the tube into the logs near his mouth to get him some oxygen. They wanted to get him some fresh air since there was so much dirt in the air. They started an IV on him because his arm was exposed, but John at that point couldn't even really talk since his jaw had been injured so badly. Although he was able to tap his phone number to the firefighters with his fingers, that way they could notify his family that he was alive. Tim Curley was still trapped on top of the stack. He was still telling rescue workers that he was fine, and there were other people who needed help more than him, But after about two hours of him being up there, it was clear that he was in a lot more pain than he was letting on. Although because he was on top, rescue workers were able to bring airbags up to the stack and slide them between the logs, which made it possible to lift the logs and free Tim. He was then secured to a backboard and loaded into an ambulance. So all that, and it seems like his rescue was pretty quick. Tim Curley's family was called at about 4.30 in the morning. They were told that Tim had been hurt on the bonfire. At first, they were told he had a broken arm, or possibly some other injuries. His mother thought to herself, Okay, Tim, you knew we were coming down for Thanksgiving, you just wanted us to come down a few days early. She got in the shower to prepare for the trip, but when she got out, she found her husband sitting on the side of their bed sobbing. When she found him there, she told him it would all be okay, it was just a broken arm. But he shook his head no. She asked, did the doctor call? And he shook his head yes. He managed to get out the words, broken hip, internal injuries, in shock, critical condition. Which was, of course, some of the worst possible news they could have gotten. News of the event traveled quickly. News helicopters began flying over, and news vans began arriving on the scene as well. Cindy Lawson had been four months into her job as the executive director at Texas A&M University, so it was her job to take care of the media presence at the scene. One hour into the rescue, she was busy trying to set up the logistics of a press conference with reporters. What they hadn't provided was the number of students who had died so far. She knew they were going to have to share that information. For 90 years, the students had successfully built that bonfire no one could have predicted a tragedy of that magnitude. There had absolutely been accidents, scratches and splinters in the past, but something with this level of injury and death was the farthest thing from anyone's mind. It wasn't just the media who was at the scene of the collapse. There were also close to 6,000 students, friends and family there, standing by, praying and supporting each other. At that point, nine students had been killed, and 28 were injured. 27 of those students had been transported to the hospital within the first hour. Bill and John were going to be some of the most difficult rescues from the stack. At that point, it was still relatively unstable. The two men were actually fairly close together in where they were located, with Bill just behind where John was located. Both of them were pinned very tightly underneath everything. The rescue workers had to take one log off at a time to get to them, so it was very slow and painstaking work. The pace was slowed by the decision to remove many of the logs by hand for fear that using heavy equipment to remove them would cause further collapses, resulting in further injuries to those still trapped. Students, including the entire Texas A&M football team and many members of the university's Corps of Cadets, rushed to the site to assist rescue workers with the manual removal of logs. The Texas A&M Civil Engineering Department was also called to examine the site and help the workers determine the order in which the logs could safely be removed, And at the request of the Texas Forest Service, Steely Lumber Company in Huntsville, Texas sent log moving equipment and operators. They eventually brought in cranes and used massive airbags to maneuver these extremely heavy logs. Like I mentioned earlier, firefighter Darren Allen was the one with John Comstock for the majority of the night. He kept John going and continually checked on him to make sure he was okay almost every 15 minutes. And this is absolutely horrifying, but when Darren looked up into the small cavern created by the logs that John was in, he could see that bodies of two students who had been killed were trapped right above him. And also, they would have been trapped right above where Bill was, because like I said, John and Bill were very close together in the stack. One of the most important things for John was getting the log that had been pinning his head down off of his head. I mean, that sounds very important to me. That sounds awful. And the rescue team had been able to do that by using the airbag from an 18-wheeler to lift the log off of his head. Once they did that, John was able to turn his head and actually see the firefighters and rescue team. And he saw that they had been putting their heads fully to the ground to see into the stack and at him through a small hole with their flashlight. But he was finally able to get a wet rag from one of them and get the dirt out of his eyes, which sounds like it was an amazing feeling after so many hours of having your head stuck in one position. Meanwhile, Mandy had been brought to the hospital, along with a few other students who had been pulled from the stack. But it was a fairly small hospital, so they were out of exam rooms, which meant a lot of survivors had to be left in the hallway while they waited to be seen. She found out while she was there that she had a cervical sprain to her neck, but there were a lot of other people there who were hurt. So after finding out what her injury was and that it wasn't life-threatening, They released her from the hospital. They made no attempt to clean up any of her many scrapes on her body. But that kind of makes sense. If they did that for everyone, it would take an extremely long time. And they didn't have the manpower for things that weren't life-threatening at that time. So she was sent home to wash out her many cuts on her own. She had so many on her face and all over her body. She had splinters, dirt, and rocks stuck in her face. And all over her body, like I said as did basically everyone else. At the same hospital, Tim Curley's family had been given more terrible news. He had made it through the night, but toxins had built up in his body to the point where he couldn't survive it. He did end up passing away from his injuries in the hospital, which is awful. But Tim really showed the kind of person he was. He was so selfless and brave. He was more concerned with getting other people out than he was himself. He really was a hero that day, and he was remembered for it. The news had been reporting there were only two people left in the stack. However, rescue workers and the university hadn't put out an official number on how many people had died, were injured, or were left to be rescued. By that time, the rescue team was pretty sure there were still around eight people left inside, And everyone became anxious about when the real numbers would be released because then everyone would know just how tragic this event had really been. When a body would be recovered from the stack, they would be wrapped in a white sheet and carried away. And that practice seemed endless through the night. On the backside of the collapse, a team was still working to get John Comstock and Bill Davis out. They had begun doing sound tests with John, which basically meant they would need absolute quiet and for John to listen as they worked. And if he heard any kind of shifting sounds or creaking, he would have to tell them immediately, and they would stop what they were doing, because the last thing they needed was for the stack to collapse more. John Comstock was only a few feet from Bill Davis in the stack, and from where each of them were located, they would have to get Bill out before they could get to John. By that time, it was around 6.30 in the morning. It had been about four hours since the collapse. One of the firefighters had to army crawl into the stack to get to Bill because he was that far inside. When he got to Bill, he said, I'm going to try to pull you out. Let me know if this hurts. And as he pulled on Bill's feet, Oh boy, did it hurt. If you remember, most of Bill's body had been pinned under the logs, and he knew that, so he knew it wasn't going to be as simple as being pulled out by his legs. But it was a nice try. What they had discovered from that attempt was that Bill's femur had been shattered, which could not have felt good to have someone pulling on your leg with a shattered femur. The firefighter asked what Bill could move, and Bill told him he could move his right arm a bit. So he reached his arm up and said that he felt something but couldn't tell what it was. And horrifyingly enough, he had been touching one of the bodies that was trapped above him. And when the firefighter realized what Bill had been touching, he told him to stop touching whatever he was touching. He didn't say what it was, but he was like, stop touching that. And he told Bill they were going to take the airbags out and place them indifferently and try to lift the logs in a new way, which hopefully would free whatever parts of him that had been pinned. Bill had begun panicking again because he felt like if he could just move his arm, he could free himself. And John, who was still trapped close by, definitely didn't want to hear that because he was almost fully pinned. So if John's arm was freed, he wasn't getting out which made it difficult for him to hear that if Bill's arm was freed, he maybe could get out. John had gotten to the point where the lack of blood supply to his arm had made it extremely painful, and he hadn't been able to feel his legs the entire time, so he wasn't sure if he had been paralyzed. The rescue team was almost positive that when John would be pulled out, his pelvis would be in a thousand pieces, because He was literally as flat as a pancake at the waist. The logs weighed thousands of pounds. It was later disclosed the stack had the weight of two 747 jumbo jets fully loaded with fuel, baggage, and people. And I don't know how to wrap my brain around that much weight being put on a person's body, but it would make sense that if that much weight was put on a person's body that they're pelvis would be shattered into a thousand pieces and be flat as a pancake, which is really a scary thought. John kept asking how much longer and the rescuers kept telling him just a little bit longer or they were getting close. But John was getting tired of hearing that answer because he caught on that they didn't know how much longer he was going to be down there. He got annoyed and said, you keep telling me a little longer, but it's been a long time. I need you to tell me how long to go, and that's what I'll do. The rescue team talking to John hesitated a little bit, but told him, we still have another guy to get out, so it's probably going to be another hour. So John told them, okay, you've got an hour. The team was using these enormous airbags that was strong enough to lift the back corner of a standard fire truck. So they stacked two of these airbags, But when the airbags inflated, they rounded. So their concern was that these two inflated airbags would slip off of each other. But they had to try. As they inflated the second airbag, the firefighter who climbed into the hole with Bill and tried pulling on his feet earlier, climbed in and told him that they were going to try once again. As the second airbag inflated, Bill realized that his elbow had become free. And as he yelled, I'm out, I'm out, He was already being pulled by his feet out of the hole this was a huge moment for the team they had gotten bill davis out of the stack something crazy firefighter darren allen had been stationed to stay with john comstock basically all night and provide patient care keep him calm and give him what he needed but he was the one who initially found bill davis And Bill had told him that he couldn't breathe and he had asthma and he thought he was going to die, which I talked about earlier. At the time, Bill was very far from being taken out of the stack and Darren had to keep going to help others that he could. So he thought that Bill Davis had died in the stack because Bill told him, I'm going to die. I can't breathe. And apparently it wasn't until they filmed their 2020 documentary that I watched, that he found out that Bill Davis hadn't died. So it wasn't until years later, like so many years later, that Darren Allen found out that Bill Davis survived, which is insane. It was a very emotional moment, to say the least. But that goes to show how much must have been going on for him not to know that Bill Davis survived until years later, and also goes to show how bad of a situation Bill Davis was in for Darren Allen to have fully believed that he did die. It wouldn't have been surprising if he did. But thankfully, he didn't. Bill was taken into an ambulance and immediately rushed by a team of people. He had no idea what was happening to him because he was so in and out of consciousness. Bill had broken both of his cheekbones, cracked his upper jaw, punctured and collapsed his right lung. Lacerated his liver shattered his right elbow shattered his femur cracked his pelvis cracked his wrist and cut his forehead to the skull just to name a few and he had to spend about 21 days in the hospital so there's all of that but let's rewind a little bit back to that night so after Bill was taken to the hospital John was still in the stack and had been reaching the six hour mark. He said a lot of people believed he never gave up, which was not true. He had reached a point in there where the pain had surpassed a 10 and he was more exhausted than he had ever been in his entire life. Darren Allen would check on him every 10 minutes and would have him give a thumbs up to make sure he was still alive. And although John would do it, he had checked out in his mind. He said he even tried to close his eyes and fall asleep because he wanted to die. But for whatever reason, his body wouldn't let him fall asleep, even though it was the most exhausted he had ever been in his life. He thought he wasn't going to make it up until the emergency crew had been able to cut the log that was over his face away. By that time, the sun had come up and he had seen light for the first time in what felt like forever. And once the sun hit his face, he finally felt like he was going to make it. They had figured out a way to begin cutting away at the logs around his body and got to a point where one of the firemen said, if we just lift up here, I think we can pull him out. John had been trapped for seven and a half hours at that point. But sure enough, after counting down from three and lifting on the last log pinning him down, one of the firefighters was able to pull John from the stack. They immediately strapped him to a gurney and began carrying him away. One of the guys told him, give a thumbs up so they know you're okay. And John said, who's they? But John did anyway. And he heard a giant crowd cheer off in the distance. The news had been aware that there was one person left in the stack. Everyone had been standing by to know if John was going to make it. And as John had been pulled out and was put on the gurney, everyone had been holding their breath as they waited to see if he was okay. But once he gave the thumbs up, the crowd erupted in cheers. John was the last survivor who was pulled from the bonfire but it took a full 24 hours from when the collapse had initially occurred before all of the bodies were removed from the stack. Of the 58 students and former students working on the stack, 12 were killed and 27 were injured. The final press conference was held at around 2 a.m. the following day when they announced they were done. On November 25, 1999, the date that the bonfire would have burned, Aggies instead held a vigil and remembrance ceremony. Over 40,000 people lit candles and observed up to two hours of silence at the site of the collapse before walking to Kyle Field for yell practice. At the stadium, fans relit their candles as the Parsons Mounted Cavalry fired the Aggie cannon 12 times, once for each victim. The following day, the Aggies upset the Texas Longhorns, winning twenty to sixteen in the annual rivalry game. So they won. I guess that's good. But it's but it's also a little shocking to me that they still played. I don't know. It's like maybe postpone. I don't know how hard that would have been, but it feels maybe worth it. I guess they didn't, which I don't know. I'm I'm not a sports person, so what what do I know? At the hospital, as John was being wheeled into surgery, he told his doctor, "'If I don't make it, tell my family I love them.'" Darren Allen, who had been with him through the entire rescue, keeping him going and alive through everything, left the stack and went to the hospital to wait for John. And as he was there, he actually met John's mom, who was also waiting for him. John had coded on the table an insane number of times, Darren Allen said he coded somewhere around 13 times, but I don't know how that's possible. If that's true, and they brought him back from almost dying that many times, that is incredible. I know that's what doctors and nurses do, but still, to bring someone back who's that close to death that many times is unbelievable. John was put under on November 18th, and he didn't wake up until New Year's. He was unconscious and in critical condition for most of the time that he was in a coma. And Darren Allen said he went into the hospital every day to sit with John and his mother and keep him company. But when John woke up, he had to come to a really terrible realization, all on his own. Laying in his hospital bed, waking up from his month and a half long coma, he learned that his leg had been amputated. And this was a huge shock for him. When his mom came into his room, he asked what happened to his leg, and she explained to him because his left ankle had been crushed, the bones were rotting from the inside out, which was causing him to go downhill very fast, and if they didn't amputate his leg, he would have died. But that's a lot to take in all at once. That day also hit Darren Allen really hard because when he came to see John, as he had done every day, the nurse told him he couldn't go see John. John was awake, but he wanted nothing to do with the people who rescued him. John was just having a really awful day. I'm sure he was scared angry and upset about what happened to him and didn't know how to process all of that information all at once. So anyone that was a reminder of what happened was unwelcome in his eyes at that time. Darren said he understood, but that was really hard to hear. So he turned around and left the hospital and he never came back, which is really sad because he's just such a good guy, but you know, he has to take care of himself too. So I get that. In the days after the bonfire collapse, the university turned its best face to the world. Its unity, its dignity, its expression of grief. But as the months passed, shock and empathy had been followed by some hard questions. What went wrong? And what happens next? A commission created by Texas A&M University discovered that a number of factors led to the bonfire collapse, including excessive internal stresses on the logs and inadequate contaminant strength in the wiring used to tie the logs together. The wiring broke after the logs from the upper tiers were wedged into the lower tiers. And there were a couple more that were speculated. So the ground was sloped. The area on which the bonfire was built dropped one to two feet toward the southeast, which was the direction the stack fell. The stack was overloaded on the uphill side, the stack was top-heavy, it was loose, and the center pole was flawed. Some people blamed the school for the accident, saying that, in the name of tradition, administrators turned a blind eye to an unsafe structure being constructed with minimal engineering and safety protocols— Before the collapse, some people, such as Texas A&M engineering professor Theodore Hirsch, expressed concerns about the safety of the bonfire, citing the partial collapse that occurred in a previous bonfire and numerous incidents involving alcohol or unsafe horseplay at the bonfire site. One of the students killed in the 1999 bonfire collapse was under the legal drinking age, yet a toxicology test showed high blood alcohol levels. However, lower readings in a second test and inconsistencies in the initial sampling and annotation methods led to questions about the accuracy of the original tests. So some people were like, the school wasn't keeping track of these students, These students did not have the qualifications that were necessary to build such an elaborate structure. And also, they may have been drinking, which, I mean, college students, when they all get together and they're having fun, might drink when they're not being supervised by like authority figures. So it's possible, you know? It's possible that underage students were drinking. It's just a tragedy. It's just like a a lot of things went wrong and it really is awful. So it's hard to say exactly what it was. It just seems like there's a lot of things that should have been looked at and were not. For two years, the university pondered options for reinstating the tradition. There was a task force that was formed which proposed a new design and it recommended that students be allowed to participate in the building of the bonfire as long as they were monitored by professional construction experts current and former students debated whether the proposed division of labor could be considered a student project. The Texas Board of Professional Engineers announced in 2000 that the Aggie Bonfire met the requirements to be considered a complex construction project subject to regulation under state engineering laws and would thus have to be designed and overseen by a professional engineer. So it was that complex of a design that They were like, yeah, these students should not be doing this. And in 2002, it was announced that Bonfire would be officially canceled. Five years later, the Bonfire Memorial was built and dedicated on the exact location of the fallen 1999 Bonfire. Darren Allen went to the memorial site that was created for Bonfire, and someone came up to him and asked him who he was and what he had to do with the Bonfire that night. Darren told him that he was a firefighter for the city, and he was on one of the first fire trucks in that night. And then that man said, I want to introduce you to someone. And that someone was John. John had recognized Darren's voice all those years later. Because like I said earlier, all of John's memories were auditory. So when he heard Darren's voice from like across the way, he was like, that's who was with me that night. Darren had literally spent his entire night laying on the ground holding John's hand, talking to him, and keeping him alive. And now, at the memorial, five years later, they finally got to talk and have some closure together. Which I'm so glad to hear happened. John said losing his leg was definitely not an easy thing. Coming to terms with the fact that his life would forever be different was not easy. But looking back on it, he wouldn't change what happened because he is happy with who he is and how things turned out. And John returned to Texas A&M in 2001 to finish his degree. Bill Davis also said he wouldn't go back and change anything. Going through everything they went through, although painful and very difficult, he feels like he is a better person because of it. He was given an extra semester to finish his exams, and three years later, he graduated Texas A&M, and he started his career and has a family. So it seems like, although they were in one of the most terrifying situations I could imagine, they wouldn't even change it, because they made it out the other side, and they're happy with their lives, which is amazing. But the thing as a whole is just such a tragic event, and my heart goes out to the families and friends and students that were affected I think it's ultimately good that it was canceled. I know a lot of people were upset that the tr- that the tradition was stopped because it was such a big one for the school, but it was very dangerous. I mean, the things that these students were doing on their own, pretty much unsupervised, was not something they should have been doing alone. And I mean, accidents did happen in the past. Like, cut alone, going out and cutting down trees with axes and falling trees in the forest, like that's not something that you can really get away with year after year and not have accidents happen. Like former students said in cut, it was not unheard of as they were, you know, whacking these trees over and over again with the same axe like, uh, an axe head would pop off and fly back at students. And like, it it wasn't just like splinters and like tiny cuts, like people would get hurt with like axes, like big accidents happened. And that wasn't like completely unheard of. So it, it was known that this could be a potentially dangerous thing that they were doing. But of course, it was never anticipated that something this huge and tragic would happen. So When it did, I'm glad that they just nipped it in the bud and were like, yeah, we're not going to do this again because we can't have something like this ever happen. But all those rescue workers were really incredible. They all stayed out there to the bitter end. Like, they all stayed out there to make sure that they got every single person out of there. And, I mean, Tim Curley deserves some recognition in this bit because he was a hero. I mean, I bet there were people who were saved... Because he let them be saved before him. He sacrificed himself so that someone else could be saved. And I don't know that he was necessarily intending for that to be the case. Like, I don't think he anticipated that he would die because of it. But I'm sure he knew that he was in pain and he was still letting other people be saved before him. So that's very brave and very noble and very selfless. But anyway... That is the Texas A&M bonfire collapse. And that is really all I will say about that. Oh my goodness. I guess we should just move on to the good thing. What is my good thing? My good thing is that this week, I will be in New York with my family. I'm bringing one of my friends with me and we're going to sit by the pool. I don't know if I already said this is one of my good things. If I did, forgive me. My mind is a little bit scattered and fried. But hey, it's a good thing. And I can add on to it. My friend has never tried an authentic Long Island egg sandwich. And I'm excited to share that with her. So we will be having many egg sandwiches. And that's my good thing. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at not today underscore podcast. If you would like to check out that bonus episode when I will not be posting because I will be moving, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something you'd like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to notodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is on today podcast and a Twitter that is on today podcast for the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah.